welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 38 of the Madden America podcast. This week, Emily Shearer Cutler interviews clinical social worker and activist Jeffrey Michael Friedman. So joining us this week is Jeffrey Michael Friedman, a licensed clinical social worker and an activist in the psychiatric survivors movement. Jeffrey provides trauma-informed therapy to victims of various forms of abuse and violence, including those who have survived abuses within the mental health system. He is currently completing his PhD in family therapy, where he's conducting research on recovery from adverse childhood experiences. In addition to his work in the mental health field, Jeffrey is actively involved in the harm reduction movement, which supports human rights and non-coercive services for people who actively use drugs. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Emily. Can you tell us a bit more about how you became interested in the topic of forced psychiatric treatment? Yeah, the the starting place that I I generally start from in, in terms of what led me to this is uh, my own experience in, in middle school at uh, Welsh Valley Middle School in uh, it was in sixth grade after leaving elementary school and at the time I was about uh, around I was about six foot feet tall when I was in uh, in sixth grade and uh, I think particularly it was at a time when I was growing up and, you know, my hormones were kicking in and I was somewhat shy and introverted and I wanted to, I didn't really, I just wanted to fit in really and look like everybody else. But being that I was that tall, I really couldn't. And one one of the ways that I had a hard time really just being outgoing with my peers, but I I decided to to take on this persona of a uh, sort of class clown and, uh, Eventually, sort of the authorities of the school start sort of tracking you and whatnot. And but then after the um, the sixth grade year, they they basically told my parents that if I wanted to stay in the public school, uh, they basically gave me the option that I could go into a special program at a different middle school that was about a twenty minute drive in the same school district that I was living in. They'd it provided these really great services and it'd be all paid for. I remember my parents telling me that news in the summer and I was really distraught by it. And particularly because I had friends at this school and I was going to a school where I knew nobody. And when I got into the program, I remember that they also like identified me as a bad kid and they sort of used this sort of, it wasn't really necessarily I wasn't using drugs. They sort of apply this kind of gateway theory of behavior that I was doing this and then this is going to lead to, you know, violent crime and really heinous violence. But it, it never led to that. But, but they, I thought they had a little bit of model of what I was doing then. Anyway, but when I was in the program, it was called Project Now, which is a very weird name. It was an acronym that stood for New Options Work. And several of the other kids in the program were, they were much more violent and they were doing some more criminal activity and were using illicit drugs at the time. I mean, initially I, I liked them because they were a little bit, they seemed more cool I and mean, they had, uh, they were engaging in more sexual activities and they were a little bit older than me and they were, you know, they just seemed more cool. But um, I, I sort of became friends with some of them, but uh, because I sort of have, I, I do have, still do have sort of a, or a protective Jewish mother. She sort of you know, scared me that I don't want to get too involved with these kind of guys. And I, I never really socialized with them outside of the school because 
they were engaging in more um, you know risky activities, and I. I also I think I felt that I was in enough, you know, this, this shift and taking me out of the mainstream, the special school, sort of internalized some of the sense of being different and being ostracized is what I was looking for. And, and I didn't want to further do, you know, I was, I became a little more fearful of engaging in other things that could put me further away from the mainstream. Yeah, so this is sort of a fundamental experience that I feel that stuck with me and, and it's what led me into uh, to this um, identifying with psychiatric survivors and also uh, the harm reduction. Yeah, what do you think is the parallel between that experience and the psychiatric survivors? Movement? Well, I mean, the uh, the parallel is sort of being identified that you're not that you're not sitting in the mainstream and that you need you know remedial help to to be able to be in the mainstream, mm-hmm. taking you out of your sort of the environment you were in to provide more sort of therapeutic support to try to get you mainstream. And, and in my experience with that, I sort of continued with it till high school and then they sort of lessened some of the support of it. I felt more mainstream. But I think the key thing that to note that I, in talking with you about this is that kind of this idea to me and the way I attribute to Foucault, this idea of self-surveillance that you sort of internalize some of these ideas of not being mainstream. And I felt that that had a little bit of fundamental, my own experience in high school, even though I don't think high school for many people, even if you don't have this type of thing is not the most, uh, you know, the greatest experience, but, but I think it shifted my experience that I tend to in, in high school when I went to the more mainstream that I isolated more and I didn't, um, I wasn't that social in high school, and I think this experience had an impact on that. I mean, the practical thing, like I was saying before, that it just it took me away from the initial friends that I made. Yeah, I could have made new friends, but I think this idea of internalizing this experience of difference affected me and inhibited my ability to, to connect as well in high school. So a lot of your current clinical and academic work focuses on the topic of trauma, why uh-huh. do you think forced psychiatric treatment meets the definition of trauma? Well, just maybe um, backing up a little bit. I mean, what led me to more of the, the trauma perspective is trying to find some kind of framework other than the traditional psychiatric nomenclature, uh, taxonomy, uh, you know, DSM, ICD-10, and try to explain uh, people's experiences from more of a trauma perspective, although the thing I like about the trauma perspective is, that, to me, it's sort of generative. It's a generative framework, meaning that it can be applied to a lot of different things, and even you know things like political, cultural trauma, which I like about it. But I also think it's limiting in the sense that it can, it, it's not always as specific. That you know, trauma is just thrown around all the time. You don't really know what it means, but. But really, after like working in mental health field, I, mean, I worked at a state hospital in uh, in Pembroke Pines and in the Fort Lauderdale area, and also working at um, addiction treatment. Uh, I, I sort of yeah saw this theme of traumatic traumatic experiences, how it led people to having mental health pathology and um, problems with substances. So. I think it's, you know, it has limits, but I, I think it's, uh, I like it as a framework for um, for understanding you know, how people suffer. Yeah, but why, uh, going back to your specific question, why it meets the, uh, I, I would say 
well, what I was thinking regarding this is that it, there's this term uh, called betrayal trauma, and this psychologist, uh, Jennifer Freed, F-R-E-Y-D, uh, she came up with a term. I mean, she talks about a, sort of two basic levels. One is that, like, you know, family members that people are supposed to be loving to you or close to you and betray you and how that's traumatic. And the, the other way is more institutions. So I, I see of the... Uh, a lot of the abuse that happens by the psychiatric system is more of a betrayal trauma. I mean, I mean, some people do, you know, some um, patients or clients or survivors, I guess, they do have the experience uh, of already mistrusting the system to begin with. But some certain people, I think, do uh, meet with psychiatrists in the mental health system, hoping they're going to be loving and kind or at least helpful, and then they're betrayed by them. So I think it is this kind of of a betrayal trauma. And uh, going back, I mean, one of the definitions for trauma, like the medical one, is being wound. I mean, another one that I kind of like from, that I, I got from Peter Levine, is it's sort of some experience that leaves sort of a lasting impression on, on the nervous system, and it sort of lingers long after the event happened. And I, I think definitely a lot of, like, some of the, the violence that can be experienced through uh, a psychiatric system can you know, leave lasting um, imprints on the body. Uh, I mean, another thing related to trauma is the sort of idea that we have sort of cultural assumptions that, of what is traumatic. And we, generally speaking, it's sort of widely uh, accepted that, like, sexual abuse and uh, physical abuse is traumatic. I think one of the key things about trauma is the idea it's not always the, the event itself. It's how um, how it affects you. Like what the same thing could happen to two people and it, it may not be traumatic. It may, they may have the event and it's the, the sensation, the experience goes away. But the, the trauma to me is more that it leaves some kind of lasting memory. Bessel van der Kolk, I mean, he talks about sometimes that like people are really traumatized it's weird because it can be a problem of remembering, but it also can be this problem of forgetting that they have this memory that they just want to forget. And then, but then also there's a part of trauma that um, it can make, it can only make you, your memories can be kind of fragmented. They only remember certain parts of it because, you know, our, our sort of brain and nervous system has some sort of protective mechanisms that try to keep us safe. So something we discussed in some of our conversations is that while many people who are not harming anyone else are subject to force, individuals such as Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland school shooter, um, who have made mm. actual threats to harm others are free. So why do you think that right. is? Yeah, no, this is a complex question, and uh, I'm glad we're having a chance to talk about it um, together. Uh and uh, for the most part, I really have a lot of hope that people can be de-escalated and, and, and a lot of things can, can be resolved. Even something as dramatic as with Nicholas Cruz's case, they can be uh, dealt with through non-coercive uh, measures. But so that being said, but you know, it's just very hard to get people to buy in really from an abolitionist perspective and, and uh, seeing you know that you can actually um, – deal with these problems without using force, but we're not at that place now. And I don't know when we'll be there, but, but so, so we're, this is the, the, the milieu that we're in that, that, you know, that it is a viable option. It's something people consider. Yeah. That someone to carry out an act such as he did requires a lot of meticulous planning and it requires some 
Uh, I mean, I would say like it requires some uh, decent level of executive function skills and so forth. And then somebody that's in real distress, you know, real acute psychiatric, what's considered like psychotic, I don't think they'd be able to do that, that that being said. Um, In his particular case, the other thing is that um, what also to me, like uh, especially the mental health system, they get very rigid and and following their rules. And what I've read about some of the reports on him is that when the Department of Children's Family Worker came to this investigation to his home, they found that Nicholas Cruz was being compliant with, their, with, their, uh, with his medication, and um, he was seemed to be open to psychotherapy, and they seemed to overlook, because he was complying in this domain, they, they were overlooking to me was really the, the, the dangerous part of his, his uh his fascination with violence and weapons or having weapons and, uh, and also some really pretty extreme, uh, ra- racial remarks. Uh, and because like, like I said, I think people can't in the mental health field, I think some people get so narrowly focused that they can't see the forest from the trees that they're just saying, Oh, he's, he's following what we want him to do. You know, if he likes guns, so what? So you think compliance is a big factor? Yeah, and then the other thing before I, I don't wanna, this is a big point that just came to me is that it's, it's, some of these lines can get kind of blurry. But um, going back to what I was saying earlier, like uh, this might be a little bit controversial, but, but I think I mean, someone like Nicholas Cruz, he wasn't it wasn't clear like prior to this the Parkland shooting, like a criminal act that they could convict him for or or forcibly restrain him, and, and I think. You know, in this kind of situation, maybe this could be a positive use of psychiatric force. But, but, but from my experience, clinical, um, primarily, and some research, it just seems like these kinds of people find ways to evade the, that psychiatric force. And usually, the psychiatric force really affects people that are vulnerable, that are into you know emotional stress, yeah, that, are, that are more likely, as a lot of the, 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 the data points to, are more likely to be um, uh, victims of violence rather than perpetrators. That's usually the people that become under psychiatric coercion. But and going back, like I think in this current state, if, if psychiatric coercion was really helped to, to confine people like Cruz, that, that to me would, could be a legitimate use of it. I know you've had some experience counseling people who have survived different types of forced treatment, such Mm -hmm. as involuntary commitment, forced drugging and ECT and outpatient commitment. Um, What would you say are some of the main psychological effects of involuntary commitment? Yeah, I I think it's um, they're just uh, mistrustful of professionals, but yet they but they do still feel that they're drawn to. If, if they're in distress to go to professionals. So there's this sort of, um, they feel they need to go to professionals, but they're, they're cautious about really opening up because they're fearful that they're going to, could be locked up again or, or held without against their will or, you know, forced drugs that they don't want to take. Um, and what about the incarceration itself and, um, the process of being locked up or confined or, separated from family members or communities. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, the impact of that is? No, it definitely has a big impact. Uh, it, uh, I mean, I think one of the things that, that, that it can do in terms of, especially families, that, that it's, uh, it very much reinforces this idea that, that, the, uh, that the person that's being locked up has an internal pathology and, and it, 
it can it can be a barrier to the family members seeing their role in the person who's being locked up their their what role they have in the symptoms and and it, it can be challenging from a um, clinical treatment perspective in the sense that as a therapist that uh, if you're trying to bring up what maybe the, the family's role in in their child or uh, husband wife whoever the identified patient is that you know they think that you're you know they interpret it as like you know that kind of blaming the parents that has like a history in the uh, in the mental health field of the you know one time the parents were blamed for like things like schizophrenia but now like so-called we've moved beyond it and we know it's like this kind of internal brain disease and I mean I think also like if you don't totally buy into that and sometimes when you question that then the, the family members may think that oh that you're not very smart or you're not a good you know, you don't really you don't really get it that that, that they may be mistrustful of you as a therapist because you're not really um, engaging in that kind of disease uh, model. Uh, it's very similar with the whole the addiction. Uh, I've experienced it too. That yeah, if you don't sort of see the, the internal client, whoever the one who's being sent away, because I think rehab is also like a force. Um, it, it can be very um, coercive and there can be you know, some pretty ugly practices in the same kind of thing. So what about the effects of forced drugging and ECT? Do you think drugs and electroshock that are forced onto people affect them differently than when people voluntarily seek out those treatments? Yeah. Um, I remember the um, we, uh, David Cohen, he, I, I like that he said that you know, there's not consent involved, that it's not really, it's not medicine. And, and I think uh, I think that's a good way of thinking about it because it's really it's more of a moral kind of punitive criminal justice type almost perspective when when, when there's no consent it, it's not and, and that's yeah and, and then go, I think going back to your earlier question is I think that's the real thing about it is that if it's not it's sort of hard for if, if it if it comes under force it's hard to then turn it and make it like for health. That's, I think, the, the challenge, that once it's forced, it's it's hard. I mean, I have seen shifts that it can start out as forced and people do maybe develop some insights with it. But but I would always say, what is the uh, the insight worth, worth the harm uh, caused by the force? I mean, could you arrive at that insight through other means? And I think if you can, you should always do it through other means. Um, and what specifically is, do you think, the harm of the force? Well, I mean, one one is just the, the like you know categorizing the trauma that it could leave you know, lasting memories that are intrusive and uh, you know could have like anxiety, uh, like PTSD like symptoms for a while. Like you know another thing with PTSD, uh, one of the classic symptoms is avoiding that, that you tend to isolate because you don't want to get triggered. It could lead to that. It could lead to that kind of Another symptom I, I mentioned earlier is like that, that emotional numbing that you just feel numb and, and you, I mean I think it can lead to these these kinds of things and it also could uh, from like a surveillance standpoint it could come up on some kind of you know governmental record if they're doing background checks that you had this done to you it could affect your ability to you know to purchase firearms and. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's definitely there's a lot of evidence to show that people that are vulnerable um, 
are more, especially that have been diagnosed with mental health problems, are likely to be victims of violence. So I think that's a natural um, to want to be able to defend yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, one one example that I saw recently, which which I, I I've come to realize how people love their animals that that they could like if you know they get locked up and they have nobody to take care of their pets or like just also another thing that I think it would it could just leave people uh, more uh, having a harder time trusting people and institutions that could have negative consequences. Just having emotional distress will not kill you, but if somebody's having a clear medical emergency. Um, if they're a psychiatric survivor, it might make them more, less trustful calling 911, engaging with medical professionals. So, you know, when they're really having an imminent, uh, an imminent uh, physical uh, health issue that could be fatal, that they may avoid it for due to past uh, negative experiences with uh, uh, coercive uh, mental health practices. Absolutely. Um, I've even heard that if someone just has a psychiatric diagnosis or hospitalization on their record, um, they might, even if they're just seeking regular medical services, they might be locked up or told that it's a psychiatric issue. Do you right. know, has that happened in your experience? Yes, no, no, it definitely can happen. Um, and the other thing I would say about it, too, is that people with the longstanding psychiatric Issues like you know, like in a state hospital environment, a lot of those people do have other medical problems, mm-hmm. and and the, the the care they get for their physical medical problems are not as good as if they didn't have psychiatric diagnoses, and that's one way they also see it happening. And, um, and then I wanted to say a bit about forced treatment that happens outside of an institutional setting, um, there's a big push for outpatient commitment. And what would right. you say are the effects of outpatient commitment or assisted outpatient treatment? Yeah. I, I mean, one of the, the, I think, I mean, a lot of people like to look, think of things from, you know, from a monetary standpoint. And I guess one of the selling points for the, uh, uh, ACE act or, you know, assist, uh, Assertive uh, community treatment, I think it stands for that. You know, that it's all it's less resource heavy than uh, than a physical uh, institution uh, in terms of um, money spent, uh, like taxpayer dollars. But uh, I mean, I, I like to think of it like from like that kind of a Foucault standpoint that uh, the, the the force is much more um, overt in, in uh, an institutional setting, whereas the uh, the outpatient uh, version. I mean, it can be very um, trans. I mean, it can not transparent, but it can be, you know, the similar type of force. But it, but it's more this kind of. It makes it so that the person internalizes the force in their head that oh that they they don't take their medication somebody may show up the door and it's it's kind of this little like that like the Foucault called the modern power that it makes a person. The clients survey themselves more. That's part of the the the, the, the uh, how it, one of the effects it has. So, going back to the trauma of forced treatment, um, mm-hmm. how can victims and survivors of forced treatment heal from these different interventions? Um, as a trauma um, therapist, what would you recommend? Well, I mean, I think I think it's naturally it happens. Uh, uh, connecting with others. That have gone through similar experiences. I think that's that that, that is very helpful, uh, and a lot of people I think do that naturally. Uh, and there's 
But I think one of the dangers that can be with that is that, you know, what makes something traumatic is their own individual experience. And, and just because some, one survivor healed in a certain way, it shouldn't be prescriptive that, you know, because this so-and-so did it, that you have to, you know, do it their way. There's many, many roads. Um, another thing uh, that's come back that I've learned through my research, this theory that I just came up and I learned about in the past uh, couple of months called altruism born out of suffering. I, I think I think a lot of survivors uh, uh, of psychiatric treatment uh, can and they can have a horrible experience, but but they can be uh, interested in making the world a more uh, benevolent place. And I, and I think. I mean, I think there's many ways to do that, but I think, you know, finding some type of uh, cause that it doesn't have to be forced treatment. But some, there's so many things wrong in the world that if you can find one that speaks to you and work on that, I think that's a great way to, uh, to help recover from it. So healing through altruism, healing through activism. Right. Yes. And why do you think the public is so often unwilling to recognize for psychiatric treatment as a legitimate form of trauma or as something that needs to be healed healed from in any way? Uh, well, I mean, I think fundamentally it's a lot of people, as you know, that they have an idea that people that are are, are primarily what falls under the uh, – I don't like the term, but it's just, you know, I think some of these words, just to, to make the point, is that, uh, you know, seriously mental illness, uh, you know, that, uh, like schizoaffective, bipolar, schizophrenia, or psychosis spectrum disorders, that, that this is um, people in this type that have these problems, this is what they need, and it's, it's um, you know, accepted by... Um, Psychiatrists that have you know gone to fancy medical schools and confer uh, you know wear the white coats and confer a sort of level of authority and respect for that they earn those titles. So, as my final question, I wanted to ask you about your work in the field of harm reduction, which you already talked a little bit about. Okay. Um, so, how does that connect to your anti-force treatment work? And one of the tenets uh, of harm reduction is to really. Uh, to start where the client uh, is and uh, let them define what, whatever, whatever the goal is that they, they want uh, rather than being prescriptive. And, and there's other forms of harm reduction, but it's really about substances. Um, for many people that are really uh, very distressed, that they, they find that their substances are their, their coping mechanism. And it's like somebody's really down in the out and they don't have much support, the traditional way is just to cut them off for the only thing that provides them with any source of hope is, is to me, highly traumatic. And the other thing is this, this push for um, safe consumption sites. Other people use the term safe injections. I like safe consumption to be more inclusive as people uh, consume their drugs through smoking, inhaling, and so forth. Um, I think that has some parallels with like a, uh, a respite in the sense that it's places where, you know, people can go uh, freely. Uh, I mean, I think there is some tracking involved, which can be kind of, you know, forced in the surveillance aspect, but they're not, you know, they're basically provided resources. They want to detox, but they're not forced into doing it. It's, I mean, I think that has some parallels with sort of the clubhouse kind of thing, but uh, me particularly, 
like, I mean, priorly, I had more experience in the mental health field, and I was always questioned the biomedical model. And when I was into the addiction world, I mean, they have a very bio disease model, model with addiction, and uh, sort of questioning that and looking at the research is sort of what led me to the harm reduction. And um, I mean, a lot of it is also very grassroots, led by people that use drugs, like a lot of like the um, nothing about us without us. I mean, they use that same. I mean, it's you know, it's used interchangeably in both uh, circles. Yeah. yeah, I think in one of our first conversations, you were kind of pointing out the parallel of coercion between the two, that some people are coerced not to use certain drugs and locked up for using certain drugs, um, and then others are coerced to use certain drugs and locked up for yeah. not using those. Right, I don't actually, and also, I mean, the other link is Saz writes about both topics, and then he's obviously a big figure in the forced uh, treatment world, but the other thing I want to add with this is I think something that's a little bit problematic that I've seen about both communities is that, I mean, every community, they create their little microgroups that, like, uh, I, I've noticed that and it's brought up a little bit in the last uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy conference. They had a little forum about mental health issues, like people that have mental health issues in the um in the sort of harm reduction drug policy reform world, they talked a lot about how uh, they, they, some of the people in this panel uh, took psychiatric drugs and they found them helpful. A lot of the other people in the drug policy uh, world sort of shame people into taking, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals, like why don't you just do acid? And, you know, they're, and I think it's very, you know, clear to be nuanced about, you know, it's more that drugs are just drugs and they're, they don't have an inherent value on their own. I mean, there's other, you know, the pharmaceutical industry does have, there's power dynamics and there's power dynamics among the psychedelic community and all these different communities. Um, and I, I've just seen that to the extremes that like, um, basically this is a gross extreme exaggeration, but I've seen it. Certain people that are anti-force medications will say, you know, all drugs are bad. They, you know, destroy your brain. And then, and then the other stream, the, the drug policy, they'll say, uh, you know, all pharmaceuticals are bad, big pharma, but uh, psychedelics are good. And uh, or if it comes from nature, it's okay. And I, I think we just need to be much more nuanced and avoid these two extremes. Yeah. And something that I've liked about your work is that it seems like you focus on letting people make their own decisions. Yeah, and informed consent. And I mean, I think, I think the, the, the thing that people mix, I mean, it can be very hard to have true informed consent with the very, um, um, it can be challenging with the, the pharmaceutical industry and the powers that have, but it still can be done uh, with the proper education. And, um, and I, I do believe in supporting people's lived experience. And if they find a certain medication helpful, who am I to tell them uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's traumatic to tell them that it's poison. It's, you know, it's big pharma. And if they find something that helps them cope, uh, you know, I, it's traumatic for me to tell them that they're, um, you know, they're weak for taking it and they're supporting big pharma and, and so forth. And then did you want to talk a little about the parallels between coercive psychiatric treatment and coercive addiction treatment? I mean, I guess the, the, the similar length that's different is that uh, one of the things that really funnels the coercive uh, aspect to, um, uh, to the addiction treatment is the whole 12-step fellowship, which is a 
is a self-help group, which the, 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 I guess the parallel on the mental health side, I would say, would be NAMI. I mean, the, the, the AA doesn't take, uh, you know, pharmaceutical money, so that's a difference. But, uh, but I mean, I know NAMI takes a lot of um, funding from pharmaceuticals, but they're similar in the sense that when people are really in more of an acute kind of uh, maybe residential hospital setting, both people from these support groups sort of reach out uh, and try to get the family on board that, that they have a disease and that they need to you know, go to support groups uh, to, to recover from the disease kind of thing. And then another, actually another thing I, I do see another parallel. You see a lot of people that are so-called in recovery from addiction. They'll go and they'll, they'll tell these stories about how that they were, uh, you know, broken and damaged, and they'll tell this sort of it's a very performative, theatrical kind of recovery. So they're addicted, and now they're they've found uh, recovery, and now and they tell the story to other people. And I've seen a parallel in the um, in the mental health recovery that they. Uh, in certain way, in some individual cases, it can be they can be anti-med, they can be for-med. But they'll talk about how that they were they were very symptomatic and distressed, and then whether maybe they found peer support or or they found NAMI or whatever it is, and now that they're this you know rock star mental health recovery person, and and, and the more I, I've seen a lot of talks, uh, probably more so in the addiction world uh, with this and in the it's just very performative, uh, the, the talks. And I think that has a sort of a coercive element to it because it's not really real. I mean, they really embellish their, their brokenness and also their success. And, and I think that, yeah, I mean, there's certain people that, that, that can do that, but I don't think everybody can get up on stage and, and do that. And it's like a, it's a theatrical performance too. Uh, yeah. But the, I, another actually big parallel in terms of coercive connection is that, a lot of people in, in the in formal addiction treatment will tell the, the person, uh, they'll sort of tell them that they have a disease or that kind of disease, psychoeducational, and they're, they may be recovered, but they'll always have it. They'll never be like normal. And then, and I mean, that's one of the things I experienced in the psychiatric um, hospital that they, the, the psychi- psychiatrist will tell the the clients that though that they you know they have a disease and it's a disease a brain disease that they'll have for life and um, I mean obviously the the idea that it being a brain disease in the first place is up for debate and it's certainly up for debate that that many people have shown that they can it's not for life but uh, but these this kind of ideology is often doc tried to be indoctrinated into the clients in both the mental health and the substance use uh, communities. And what about physical force? Um, It sounds Uh, like there's also physical force used with addiction treatment. Well, I mean, a lot of it is sometimes a psychiatric treatment If people, and they use a lot of uh, this terminology, which I think is very ridiculous and funny. Like the, the, I mean, it's funny, but it's very damaging. Like the, this is more of a, a teenage uh, facility, an addiction one, and a lot of it was not locked. And the clients, some of them just get dis- disgusted and they run away from the place. And then they'll call the cops and they'll use force to get them uh, locked up in a, like a psychiatric commitment uh, temporarily and then get them back to the place. So mm-hmm. that's and another example that you'll see, I saw also in this place, um, 
that kind of it's more uh, psychological abuse. It comes out of this kind of treatment community approach, TC abbreviation. And uh, when the clients come in, in, in the sort of indoctrination kind of thing, they'll put them in scrubs to sort of make them feel like a patient. And then once they you know behave okay, they'll be in regular clothes. But they act up again, they'll put them in scrubs as a way to sort of shame them. And, and the other example that I forgot about is often in terms of physical force is that this is more so with the, uh, like the, the wilderness programs with kids that they, uh, they'll have, um, they'll wake up, uh, one of the potential clients at like three in the morning and have very intimidating men, like former football player type guys come in, uh, and if, and if they're not compliant, they'll maybe they'll like tape up their, you know, put tape around their arms together and their mouth and, throw them in like a van to go to treatment. So that's more physical. So do you have any ideas for how the psychiatric survivors community might work with the harm reduction community to challenge public perceptions of forced treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think just some more dialogues um, and more, um, you know, engagement and having, uh, I mean, I I noticed recently that they're trying to get people with, um, I wouldn't necessarily call them more about the, people that would identify them as survivors, but I mean, there are certain people in the community that are open to uh, exploring these issues and just getting more representation, uh, you know, having harm reduction people come to psych survivors events and, and vice versa, I think would be helpful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's really great to hear about all the work you're doing on the issue of forced treatment. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, I just want to thank Jeffrey and Emily for that interview and to say that if you'd like to know more about Jeffrey's work, you can find links in the post that accompanies this interview on maddenamerica.com. And we wanted to let you know that Madden America Continuing Education is launching a new webinar series, Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal Part 2, The Psychiatrist's Perspective on Challenges, Opportunities and Shared Decision-Making. The series of eight webinars will begin on June 18th and will feature speakers including Robert Whitaker, Dr. Joanna Moncrief, Dr. Sandy Steingard and Dr. David Healy amongst others. The fee for individuals for this series of eight webinars is $100, but there is an early bird discount of $50 for those who register by May the 1st. For more information or to register, visit maddenamerica.com and use the link at the top right-hand side of the homepage. So thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.